This week, sorry, this month, we're going to talk about something which has been a little bit different, which is a little bit different to what I typically, or sorry, have been talking about of late. And it's been the reason I'm talking about this topic this week, sorry, this month, is because I've been asked a lot about it over the last couple of weeks. It seems how do I make my reliability program relevant? There's a lot of frustration out there from people who are reliability engineers or managers, managers and leaders who are wanting to make reliability a thing, but don't know where to start and perhaps feel like there's some irrelevance uh, that, or cultural perceptions of irrelevance for all this reliability stuff. And so the word I've, I've circled is why, why are we doing this? And it might sound like a very redundant or flippant question, but a lot of the time we rush to do stuff without truly understanding why. We might think we know why we're doing something because it's generally good, reliability is good, that's why we're doing reliability. But if you don't know why you're doing something as it relates to the very explicit purpose of your organization, then you're typically bound for failure. So I'm gonna start with an example, an example based on a company called uh, Planet Labs or planet.com. Uh, some of you may have uh, heard of what these guys do or don't do. Uh, these guys uh, are a company whose mission is to image every part of the Earth's surface every day. Now, let's just dwell on that. That is a fantastic vision, fantastic mission. There is no ambiguity about what this company is all about. Now, um, they, they achieve this mission by using small satellites. We're talking about really, really small satellites. So ooh, small satellites that can fit in the palm of your hand. So these small satellites are really uh, starting to make inroads in the satellite industry. People are realizing, hey, they don't need to be multi-billion dollar behemoths to do really good things. So Planet, uh, Planet Labs, planet.com has a number of satellites uh, circling around orbiting Earth. And these, these uh, small satellites obviously have little optics on, on board, little cameras that can take images. And essentially they all work together to make sure that every square inch of the Earth's surface is covered every single day. So in terms of metrics that matter, how do we gauge the performance of this flock of satellites as they're called, and they actually call these satellites doves. So the collective term for doves or birds of any type is flock. So one thing that's obviously very important is the total number of satellites that are, that are orbiting the, uh, the Earth. But of course, those satellites need to be working. So when we launch these satellites, how long will they be lasting for? What's their mission duration? And beyond that, what's their mission reliability, the probability that they're gonna last, um, uh, last their, their nominal mission? And of course, there is cost. That's another thing we all we want to consider when we uh, when Planet.com uh, or Planet Labs is going to launch all these different satellites to achieve their beautiful visual mission of imaging Earth's surface every single day. So you can see here that reliability is one of these uh, one of these things which make it very easy to work out or relate the status of each satellite to planetary uh, sorry organizational success. So as of right now. 
planet.com, Planet Labs, has in excess of 150 satellites orbiting the Earth. They aren't necessarily interested in reliability exceeding a certain level. And that might sound crazy because small satellites can be manufactured relatively inexpensively. It actually means that reliability is part of the calculus. So for example, if you have a choice of spending $3 million on a small satellite or buying three $1 million small satellites where those three small satellites are half as reliable as the most expensive one, then when you do the math, you actually want to do, you want to go with those three less reliable small satellites. It's just as, just as, um, just as cost effective to buy one really reliable one or three less reliable ones, but collectively provide more reliability in terms of having at, uh, at least one small satellite orbiting Earth. So they focus on the vision. They focus on why they are here uh, to make all these decisions. There's no such thing as good or bad reliability because they know how reliable satellite, uh, they know how to work out how valuable each satellite is as a function of cost, reliability, and all sorts of other things. So we don't need to have demonstration tests where we pass or fail, for example. It's all built into their purpose. So reliability is obviously very important for planet.com, Planet Labs. And in fact, they're able to trade off reliability for costs and all sorts of other things in a really informed way. And as an aside, this organization is doing very, very well. So the point is, we're not interested in one satellite. We're not interested in three satellites. We're interested in imaging the, uh, the Earth's surface every single day. So we aren't, Planet.com or Planet Labs is not interested on what it is they're doing in terms of what uh, the actual product system or service. They're interested in the effect. And that's how we need to look at all the things that us reliability engineers, us leaders, us managers are overseeing. We're not technically interested in what we're creating. We're more in, we need to be focused on why we're doing it. And when we focused on why we do these things, everything tends to make, to make sense. So if you're in a commercial organization, for example, uh, why is the reason customers buy your thing? Why is the reason users love your product system or service? The why, if you can articulate the why in your organization, that makes employees excited and motivated to turn up to work every single day. Because if you have a very clear why, you have a very clear definition of success, which provides direction to those very motivated employees. Now, this might sound airy-fairy, but think about it. Have you ever struggled uh, being, uh, in an, being in an organization where no one tells you what good or bad reliability performance is? If the answer is yes, just imagine working in a place like planet.com or planet labs where the mission is so clear, so, uh, so easy to discern, so easy to evaluate in terms of success or failure that you can go away and use your considerable mind power to combine reliability with cost and the number of satellites and everything else that you, every other lever you can pull to achieve success. And that's ultimately what we're after. And from another perspective, uh, some people argue, including this guy, that people are, people are more interested in why you do things. He says, uh, Simon Sinek, he's a very, well-known uh, thought leader in terms of business and personal development and brand development, he argues that 
what you do serves as proof of what you believe. He goes on to say things like, people don't buy what you do, what you make, they buy why you make it. He uses Apple as an example. People have a certain customer experience or, or buy into the vision of Apple uh, hardware where there's a single customer experience, uh, regardless of the platform you're using. Your iPhone is hooked up to your, uh, uh, to your MacBook, which is hooked up to every other Apple device. So when something happens on your iPhone, it seamlessly uh, appears in the, in the logbook of your MacBook and everything else as well. People love that. People love the vision that Apple had when it came, came to customer experience. So that's why people buy Apple products. And that's one of the reasons why Apple is a very, very successful organization. People buy what, uh, people buy things not because of what they are, because of why you do it. It's all about the why. So this might seem at too high a level. You say, okay, that's, that's fantastic, but I work in an organization where, uh, of course, there's organizational visions and all sorts of old dudes in jackets go, go away for a, a weekend junket somewhere. In, uh, in the Caribbean to come back with an amazing new vision statement for the organization, which is uh, barely decipherable in terms of uh, management gobbledygook and other jargon. Uh, how can this affect, how can this high level observation about how, for example, planet.com influence me in my small little team, my small little area within a bigger, um, more brutish organization? Well. I'm gonna ask that you hold on to that question, uh, questions related to that scenario to later on this lesson. So for example, I want you to shelve this one. I want you to, if you're thinking about, if you're thinking about asking, but my, my big organization doesn't have a good why and I'm only a small cog in the machine, how does this apply to me? I'm going to ask that you hold that question till the end or later on in this webinar. So going back to the big organization um, perspective, we, we know that successful organizations have a clear why statement. Now, the image you're about to see is an image of John F. Kennedy talking at Rice University in 1963. And if you haven't seen this speech, I'd urge you in your own time to go on YouTube and uh, listen to it. Uh, he is outlining the vision for the Apollo program in this speech, where he's saying, explaining exactly what success for the Apollo program is, where they launch from Earth, deposit astronauts on the lunar surface, get back on board the, the uh, orbiting uh, crew module and return safely to Earth. He says it very clearly. He uses distances. He uses numbers. It is unambiguous uh, what success looks like for the Apollo program. And that means that every engineer, every technician, every astronaut, every cleaning lady who is a part of the Apollo program knew why they were there. Now, that's all good. That's all a very important part of what successful companies are all about. They need to have uh, a very clear why we are here. But that why has to be tied to this concept of value. You can't have success and have a clear why with that why not being linked to value. So if why is not linked to value, then what you are doing is a hobby. You can be passionate about a hobby. You can be passionate about something that you do in your backyard on a weekend. You can uh, love, for example, uh, I, I like watching Forged in Fire where you have uh, amateur blacksmiths from across 
the world come together and uh, forge knives and hammers and all sorts of weird and wonderful cool things. And they are passionate about what they do. If no one's going to buy those knives, they will still have a clear purpose as to why they do them because it brings some sort of internal joy, but it's not valuable. If no one's going to buy those knives, there's no value to what they're doing apart from their own personal satisfaction, which is very important. But that means that what they're doing or the thing that they're part of is a hobby. So successful organizations have a very clear why statement and that why statement or that why uh, vision, that purpose, that raison d'etre is valuable. So it doesn't nececessarily need to be big organizations uh, valuable from the, from the perspective of a big organization. So value to you could be professional success. It's all about what it is that you value. But if, again, if no one is going to buy what you're making, then it becomes a hobby. So successful organizations with very clear whys and those whys are valuable. So for example, Apple's going to, uh, wants to create essentially a bunch of different products with computer technology in it that uh, creates a seamless customer experience. That's where iPads came from. That's where smart iPhones come from. They, Apple were pioneering the incorporation of computer technology into everyday devices for a per bigger purpose of a single seamless customer experience. That's why they were doing it. And that sort of, that sort of purpose, that sort of why is valuable, valuable because people like that and they purchase Apple products left, right and center. So once you've got the, once the successful organization has got their why, they realize it's valuable, valuable they need to start thinking about how they do what they do and how is all about people how do people do stuff and this is obviously getting a bit more uh, a bit more uh, down in the weeds how it could relate to organizational processes and procedures or operating models different organizations call them different things but once we come up with a purpose once we realize where we want to uh, image every square inch of Earth's surface every day, how do we go about doing that? Well, then that's when we work out that we need this many people, we're gonna use satellites, we're gonna do this, we need to have launch platforms or otherwise pay organizations to launch our satellites into orbit, for example. Once you've got the how, the how defines how you do your thing and how you do your thing is essentially those people that are governed by that how go off to create something. They create a system, they create a service, they create an organization collectively that not only uh, designs small satellites, not only launches small satellites, not only sets up um, signal stations on earth so that they can get data back from those small satellites. Uh, you'll have other people who get that data and turn it into uh, beautiful color images. And then somebody else obviously has to then engage customers to sell these images to, to make to create commercial success, so on and so forth. So all these people work together to create the thing that uh, generates value based on your why. And that thing is the what. So it could be a medical device that saves lives. It could be a military force that can defeat adversaries. It could be a software system that provides IT services for a company. And so when you put all these things together, you have this sequence of why, which has to be valuable, which then defines how you do something, which 
allows people to go and create stuff. And that thing they're creating is the what. And that what generates value. Now that might seem like a very arbitrary, uh, a very basic sequence of, uh, of ideas or concepts, but if you get it wrong, the results can be disastrous. So before I move on, are there any questions about the why, value, how, create, what series of ideas or concepts who will allow me to, to have a quick drink as well? Any questions or comments? No, okay, so let's move on to an example of an organization who does this whole thing pretty well, Amazon. Now, Amazon is well known for being a very customer-centric company. Uh, when Amazon came out, people could not believe that all you had to do if you didn't like your thing was to put it in the box that you received it and mail it back. That was, was seen as commercial suicide for an organization like Amazon back in the day. But the reality was they understood what they were there to do. They were there to uh, focus on the customer. That was what their why is based on. And when they did all these things, which people initially laughed at, they all of a sudden became this monstrously successful organization because they decided they're gonna focus on the customer. Now, Jeff Bezos in particular, uh, he, he uh, advocated what, they, what he calls a day one mentality. The idea is that when an organization is young, when it's a startup, uh, it's a very exciting time to be alive because you're making up rules as you go. You're learning. There's no dogma. There's no, this is how we do things here. You are at the forefront of creating something new and amazing. And he would argue that a day two organization is an organization that falls back into its processes and procedures. The ability to question the status quo disappears because the status quo has been established. Uh, the ability to do something outside of your nominal lane is, uh, is somewhat quashed because everyone has their own role and purpose in the uh, bureaucracy, in the process. So he advocated that Amazon needed to be a day one organization all the time. So people when were deliberately told uh, or empowered, I should say, to think about what they could do versus what they were told they couldn't do. And so the, the Amazon business model, um, you might've seen this very simple little doodle, looks like this. At the center of their business model is this idea of growth. On the right-hand side, as you see it, is this idea of customer experience. And the idea is that if you follow this little loop, this little circle, this, this little wheel, that if the customer experience is good, then you're going to generate more traffic. More people are gonna be drawn to Amazon to buy stuff. If more people are drawn to Amazon to buy stuff, then more sellers will be drawn to Amazon to sell stuff. And as the, uh, the number of sellers increase, then the, then the selection of goods increases, which goes on to uh, improve the customer experience and you keep increasing. And at the center of this is obviously the idea of growth. And when you grow, you're able to realize economies of scale. So when you have those economies of scale, you're able to drive down your cost structure and that allows you to lower your prices, which then feeds into the customer experience. And this little business model is surprisingly important in Amazon to this day. So for anyone who's worked with Amazon people, 
to help them out, uh, you, you quickly get an appreciation of how this day one mentality and how this business model is really, really emphasized from the start. A lot of people struggle when they first get employed by Amazon because they, they're used to being told what to do. And those are the people who sort of leave with the tail between their legs, at least my experience. And those who are more entrepreneurial, those who, are in, who enjoy be given, being given autonomy and freedom really tend to flourish. So if we look at Amazon in this little why, value, how, create, what series of ideas or concepts, the reason their why is all about customer experience. The value of this is obviously going back to the, to the shareholders or stockholders. And obviously the value of Amazon has in, in increased exponentially over time. How they go about doing things? Well, they because it's such a big organization, they can't micromanage everyone. So they need to have this really simple business model from the start. And obviously each little department and little team can create their own processes and procedures, but in support of this bigger, uh, more uh, very simple business model. It's a, actually a fallacy that the bigger and more complex an organization is, the bigger and more complex their processes and procedures need to be. In fact, as a rule, if, it's, uh, if your organization becomes very, very large, it's gonna be very, very different between teams, very, between directorates, between countries. You need to have a very simple approach to how you do things. They go and create these, for example, autonomous warehouses, which are moving towards lights out operation where it'll, it means that robots can do the sorting of all this, these goods 24 seven. And that's going to introduce new levels of customer experience. And the what they create is an online shop and delivery service. Customers and users love, uh, uh, love the customer experience. They keep coming back and they are the ones who are providing value to the organization. So Amazon has a very clear why and the sequence of concepts makes sense. So for reliability to happen, we need to have a why statement, a purpose, a vision, a raison d'etre where reliability is a key part of it. You need to be able to look at your vision, which is to, for example, image every square inch of Earth's surface every single day and see where reliability is part of that. If, for example, reliability is a necessary evil or a box to tick, that's when you start to get, start to get problems. So let's look at some of these problems, um, be, uh, some of these examples where the whole why, value, create, uh, sorry, why, value, how, create, and what goes wrong. And there are typically five ways it goes wrong. Sorry, I can see a question from, uh, sorry, not, not a question, but a comment uh, from Doug who says, this very much speaks to corporate culture. Can you comment on how you, your, me your message ties into culture? Could I uh, have a go at that later on in the webinar, Doug? Because it's a very good, very uh, reasonable request. Um, and, let's, and then you can grade my response, see how well I go. Um, and if you don't like what I say, well, at least if I've, uh, if I've made you, uh, made you wait to the end, of the end of the webinar, you only have a smaller window to complain. Sorry, I'm, I'm being facetious, but I'll try and get back to that, uh, that, that uh, request, which is a very good one. So when things don't go well in organizations, five, thing, five things tend to happen. So you can see here a lost list of five, I should say. The what replaces the why, there is a fuzzy why, create is now thing, value replaces the why, and then there's poor leadership. So we'll go through each one of these uh, in, in, in sequence and you'll, see, you'll perhaps see elements of where your organization might be struggling if it doesn't have a really strong purpose. 
So here is a sequence that we're after. Now, if the watch replaces the why, the thing we're creating becomes more important than anything else, then there is no real room for value. So for example, uh, does anyone remember blackberries? So if we could get a few thumbs up to see if anyone can remember these uh, fantastic one stage world's most dominant smartphone, uh, uh, sorry, device. Any, can anyone of our, any one of you guys remember back in the good old days, the old, uh, no one's got, no one's giving me a thumbs up. Gee, so, oh, now we've got a couple. All right. So what made a BlackBerry uh, unique and different was it had a physical, physical keyboard. So in 2012, this was one of the most dominant smartphones in the world. And the reason why people liked it is because uh, people liked the idea of being able to send emails on smartphones and uh, the uh, uh, BlackBerry's uh, physical, physical keyboard was very, very good at helping you do that. Um, but over time, that became the reasons uh, BlackBerry existed. Uh, so what that meant is that when we focus on the physical, physical, uh, physical keyboard, we stop questioning whether the physical keyboard is what we need to be doing. So what happened was, is that they focused on manufacturing smartphones with, with physical, physical keyboards, even though the market was clearly saying, hey, I understand that this was really cool back in the day, but with all this wonderful new technology on smartphones, the, uh, for example, think of cameras, uh, you want to have a big screen when you're taking pictures. Think about uh, face, facial recognition, think about FaceTiming, think about all those things that we use our smartphones for today that back in 2012 weren't as, a, weren't as big a deal. So customer expectations and, and, and desires changed, but BlackBerry stuck religiously or stubbornly to this idea of having a physical keyboard. And they did it to the extent they kept telling the customers, this is what you want, and they very quickly went out of business. BlackBerry doesn't exist anymore. In fact, you can look at some uh, so-called BlackBerry devices, which I think are manufactured in Indonesia. It's very hard to get hold of, but they're essentially very large smartphones with Android operating systems. We still have that physical keyboard, but suffice to say, they, they were fixated on the what to the extent that they, they didn't have a reason anymore for turning up to work and coming up with great new ideas. And very quickly, the customers uh, told us that they were over the idea of having phys the physical keyboard. And BlackBerry was essentially organizationally arrogant and said, no, this is what we're gonna do. All right, so that's the first way organizations can come unstuck. They focus on what it is they're creating. That becomes enshrined as the reason they exist. And when you do that, you stop being able to tie value to what you do because it is the customers and users who give you the value that you crave. They will pay for your phone or decide to go somewhere else. The next um, way things go wrong is when we have a fuzzy why, fuzzy value. And instead of, uh, instead of it being, uh, instead of how being followed from uh, the why or value purpose, uh, from the, the value statement. Why we are we? Why are we here? What are we supposed to be doing? That means that instead of work, instead of being able to uh, work out in a very scientific and logical way how we go about achieving success, 
when success isn't apparent, then what inevitably happens? People get busy. Create becomes more important. People don't know what success looks like, so everyone does what they essentially either think success looks like or what they want to, want to do. So for example, think of the space shuttle. That is an example of a what when the why is very, very fuzzy. So we don't, no one really uh, clarified what success looks like for the space shuttle, uh, space shuttle program. So what inevitably happened is that they weren't able, the beneficiaries, the, I suppose the, the voters of, of the US or, or, the, or their representatives were unable to really look at the space shuttle program and say, how do you provide value to me? And so uh, uh, the space shuttle program became very famous for the idea of earmarks. And that was where congressmen and congresswomen would only approve funding if, the, if NASA decided to spend a certain amount of money in their state or in their electorate. And that meant that that eroded many of the managerial decision-making powers of the organization. Instead of deciding what was best for the program, they had to uh, satisfy uh, people holding the purse strings. So what would inevitably happen over time is because we don't know what success looks like, but everyone is even really skillful um, uh, engineers that no doubt NASA had at the time, they were doing what they could without success being defined. Also meant there was no reliability goals realistically being incorporated into the program. Uh, so when something bad happens in organizations like this, the powers that be demand ever-increasing uh, layers of oversight, which means they say, for example, you need to comply with this standard or you need to be reviewed by this person, which then goes on to really uh, modify the how we go about doing things, but it's too late because everyone's doing their own thing anyway. And this is obviously an image of, uh, of the uh, Challenger disaster where it exploded 79 uh, seconds after takeoff. If you read the Columbia Accident Investigation Board report, uh, the term echoes of Challenger is carpet bombed throughout that report. The same cultural issues that led to the Challenger disaster were apparent when it came to the Columbia disaster, which was 17 years later. So let's look at um, let's look at this, the uh, space shuttle program in a little greater detail. Back in the 1970s, when NASA was arguing for the space shuttle program, and they're up against a somewhat hostile president, Richard Nixon, Apollo, the Apollo program had just wound up. Nixon couldn't see the ongoing benefit of having a space program. Um, and he was essentially uh, persuaded that you know, the US could not um, proceed without a, without a space presence where while well, the rest of the world was starting to develop theirs. But anyway, NASA argued that each launch back in the 1970s of the space shuttle would cost about $7.7 .7 million. Now in practice, the amount of, the amount of money spent on, uh, on each launch was about 256 million or about $1.5 billion in today's dollars. And they argued that the rate of launch would look roughly like this, but in practice, that was the actual number of launches. So. Uh, the space shuttle program was always doomed from the start. They never had enough money. The phrase doing too much with too little was, was also carpet bombed in the accident reports, all because success wasn't clearly defined. What, is, what does a successful program look like? So that's how things can go wrong uh, when 
we don't have a very clear why statement and compare the space shuttle program with the Apollo program. Success is very clearly defined by JFK and a lot of other people. Everyone knew what the successful end state looked like. The space shuttle program, not so much. And that's where you have, when you have a fuzzy why, the whole create thing becomes the most important element of that organization. In a way, it turns into a hobby factory. Now, another way things can go awry is when organizations outsource the whole creation piece. And when I say outsource it, I mean everything. Think of militaries who used to make military equipment, but now have sort of atrophied their engineering capability to the extent that they have these uh, specific defense contractors they go to over and over again to create their great new things. And so when that happens and they also lose all their engineering expertise, what happens to the organization left behind? They're not creating anything. So teams in the militaries, for example, have to focus on their how. Their how is not engineering. What is their how? Well, their how becomes bureaucratic. How do we manage the contracts that oversee the creation of stuff? Uh, so those organizations who lose the ability to create stuff have a tendency to quickly focus on bureaucracy, on process, contract management clauses. If anything goes wrong, it's back to the contract. What do the contracts say? And that means that uh, there is no real concept of value, even though it's apparently written in, into the contract. Um, there are no, they are no longer leaders of creation. When organizations focus on talk to third parties all about bureaucracy and process and contractual clauses, they are telling that third party that, that is what we truly value. So instead of engineering, good design being the most important thing, everyone gets focused on process and procedure. And if anything goes wrong, which inevitably does, the end result or, or, or the reaction is to impose another process, have another committee, have another review, have another level of oversight, more contractual clauses, which makes it worse and worse. So that's another way organizations go, uh, go wrong. And then we have the whole idea of just focusing on value. So if organizations lose their purpose and just focus on value and nothing else, sometimes people call return, this call return on investment or shareholder value, you inevitably turn into organizations like Enron, where you make decisions based on what we can do today to maximize perceived value. It's not about trading energies in a sustainable way anymore. It's all about maximizing profit today. And that inevitably leads uh, the organization down a very dangerous path where it becomes the perception of value, which is the most important thing, rather, rather than the good underlying purpose for that organization to exist. So the how, instead of being, being linked to the why you are there, becomes closing the deal. And you can only do this so often. And uh, organizations like this often have a very uh, toxic, uh, toxic culture where fear drives everything. You need to uh, report better than your compatriots over there. Otherwise, you won't get that promotion or any, all that bad stuff that uh, this very surgical, this very clinical uh, definition of value uh, thrusts upon your decision making. So this guy here, um, Jeffrey Skilling, he was the CEO of Enron at the time. Stuff went down. Uh, so he, uh, in, he created this thing called the PRC process, 
the uh, performance review committee. And the idea is that every Enron employee would be graded from a scale of one to five. And a lot of that meant uh, was based on internal connections and things like that. But if you were scored a five and every manager, every leader was required to score at least 15% of their employees as five, five being the worst, uh, those people were fired annually. So it's a very, very um, toxic culture where you had to, even if you weren't performing very well, you would essentially have to uh, stab other people in the back because you were driven by the fear of getting, getting fired. And in fact, this guy openly stated that he believed fear and money were the, were the best and perhaps only motivators of performance. So that's what happens when value replaces why. You need to have a valuable why. You don't need, value doesn't come first. It quickly drives, uh, it quickly uh, evolves into a very toxic interpretation of why you were there. And of course, even if you do have this, this series of ideas right, leader, uh, poor leadership can get in the way. If you have poor leadership, they don't, they don't uh, sell the message to the employees, which means they don't have good oversight of how things happen, how we create stuff. Uh, uh, employees don't know what they are doing. They don't know why they are there. They might be doing everything they think they need to do to prov promote organizational success. But if leaders haven't explained how important their role is and what important looks like for each and every single person in that organization, all these things, all these concepts quickly uh, disappear. And inevitably, if you start with uh, issue number five, you're going to end up with one of those initial four issues. So it usually starts with poor leadership. And leading is different to managing, which is different to creating. So when we talk about leading, uh, leading is a very different job than managing, and which is a very diff different job to creating. So when you're a leader, you need to introduce the idea of a vision. You need to explain the why. You need to link value to the why. And then you, uh, then you will essentially empower the managers to oversee or implement the, uh, uh, implement the reason why your organization exists. When you're looking at this from the perspective of reliability, you typically, organizations which do this very well have uh, uh, some, someone who is like a reliability champion, the one who's going to advocate for success. And they will help uh, incorporate the vision into a reliability plan. And reliability engineers can then reference that plan and then go and do good stuff. And once that's all humming, then we have really good performance, uh, performance indicators. Planet.com, they know how to measure performance. How many, how many uh, sorry, how much of the earth are we imaging every single day? It's very easy to measure good or bad performance because there is a very clear why and leadership is very strong, which means motiva motivation becomes inherent. So leaders need to communicate. They need to do things like enable. They can't just say, go and do this stuff without enabling. They need to train people. Uh, and those motivated people who will then seek that training, they need to be informed risk takers. Managers don't do that. Leaders are the ones who, who uh, take the risk. And that feeds into organizational processes with reliability stuff. And of course, the stakeholders, the shareholders, they get the rewards. They reap the rewards from this humming organization. The reality is everyone is a leader. It just depends on what time of the day it is. So leaders spend most of their time leading of course, they spend some time managing. Managers spend most of their time managing, but of course, they're leaders as well, um, and they need to do all sorts of other things. Like they need to do, they need to create every now and then. 
And even the most junior employees, the most junior engineers, they will spend most of their time creating the thing, but they are leaders as well. They might be peer group leaders, or they might come up with an initiative that they need to feed back up their chain of command and say, I've got a great idea for something. That's leadership from the bottom up. But the reality is it starts at the top and that sets a tone for everything else that follows. So we have leaders, managers, and creators. And that's how our organization reacts around that good sequence of why, value, creating, or, or um, and then uh, what it is we're doing. Now, if we have man uh, poor leadership where people, uh, those leaders are managers, and simply those managers manage other managers, you have this big organization of managers, this endless concept of management, uh, there's no concept of leadership, just managers and more people in suits. And effectively, you have to die before someone gets promoted. That's what management looks like. That sort of endemic uh, management culture looks like. That's not leadership. So there's no vision. There's no uh, a plan turns into a checklist because we don't know how our thing, our, the thing we're creating ties into the purpose for doing it. And when that happens, uh, we, we don't, we can't, uh, cherry pick the, the good reliability activities. We need to come up with a checklist because we don't know. So we just need to get stuff off the shelf, look at textbooks and otherwise convince ourselves we're taking reliability seriously. And so engineers stop being reliability engineers. They start becoming reliability auditors in those organizations where leadership has left the building. And that means performance indicators uh, are based on short-term goals because there's no long, there's no vision. So long-term is not a thing. Um, and I'll come back to a couple of questions. And instead of uh, being able to reward good behavior, we have crisis punishment. And the, probably the biggest, biggest thing uh, that we notice down here is we have a team of firefighting heroes. There's so many crises that you have a select team of people who come in and solve those problems day in and day out. They are lauded as heroes because they somehow turn the ship around. But the reality is uh, they are there in response to a very troubling symptom. So Bill asked the question, what does MOE mean? MOE stands for measure of effectiveness. And for commercial organizations, this could be something like profitability. How do you measure success as an organization? How is that organization successful or more successful than that one? So a lot of the time it's all about profitability, but that doesn't mean that that is more important than why you're doing it. If people don't have the passion, it's a human endeavor. If people don't know why they're turning up to work, then you won't generate value that is measured in terms of MOEs. Now for militaries, for example, MOEs aren't linked to profitability. They're perhaps better captured in terms of military capability. And that is a necessary deviation from uh, money as a measure of success or value. Uh, but sometimes when organizations uh, define their own concept of value, it can get in the way of actually, to, of, um, of, good performance. As I was saying in the, in the military world, that you, you always start the next war as if you're fighting the last because in that intervening peacetime period, you don't really challenge yourself the way the enemy challenges you obviously to learn and adapt. And so it usually takes a little time to get back uh, to start uh, adapting to the changed world. It's very rare for militaries to launch a brand new campaign uh, uh, with a up-to-date concept of military capability. But Either way, it's a separate conversation, but MOE stands for measure of effectiveness, which is how you would look at one organization and say it's more or less successful than that organization over there. Okay. 
So that is where things can go wrong. And you know you're in an organization where things are going wrong when you have managers, uh, uh, leaders who are replaced by managers. When you have things like uh, lots of posters with inspirational words and inspirational quotes from those those managers with their heads uh, heads on those posters. You might have things like safety uh, posters, which say reliability, quality, or safety is our number one priority. Uh, we have other things like certificates awarded to people who appear to be doing good reliability stuff. That's how they that's how managers sort of get around the uh, void of leadership. They, this sort of is a proxy to good personal management. Um, they tick the box from their perspective and then move on. The reality is we're going straight back to an organization which has a team of firefighters uh, solving every single problem of the way. And the reality is those firefighters are expensive and time consuming. So you're always behind the eight ball. Now, talent doesn't come or stay in this organization. If you have a, a lack of leadership, if leaders haven't described why you, you are there, why customers and users are gonna be interested in the thing you're making, then talent won't stay there. It's as simple as that. We know that uh, uh, increasingly engineers are less likely to stay at an organization um, like they did back in the olden days. And the reality is they are becoming more demanding of employers and that's a good thing. And so we have, uh, and people used to think, oh, we'll just compensate them with money. But it turns out that these younger engineers are more motivated by happiness professionally. And so they will go to lower paying jobs, but perhaps it's with a startup where what they do is exciting. That happens. In fact, I was at a conference one time where someone said, how do I combat all these millennials, all these generation Z people leaving my organization? They just come in here, stay for a couple of years and then leave. And I asked him, are you saying that these, these people are coming to your organization and even if they love working for you, love working in your organization, they are somehow genetically wired by, based on their birthday to leave your organization, even if they're completely happy there. Are you saying they are, they are genuinely leaving an organization that would be happy to stay at? And there was a very awkward silence after that because it's irrational to do that. What's happening is more and more people, uh, more and more uh, engineers are acting on their happiness. If they're not happy at an organization and they leave, and this is somewhat, this is, this is very troubling for organizations who are missing that key leadership piece. <clears throat> okay, I can see a comment from Bill as well saying that slogans and posters is one of the points Deming cautioned against. Uh, I know I would echo that. The reason why, from my perspective, I don't like posters is that it is a monument to effort with very little links to outcomes. So, it allows that manager to feel good about doing something by endorsing a poster and putting it up on the wall, but not actually spending the time to clear his or her calendar to solve a cultural reliability problem. All right, so let's go back to you guys in your little organization. You guys are typically not the CEOs, you're reliability engineers who really want to do good things in the organization that you work for. Well, let's assume that's the case. And nine times out of 10, that's, a, that's, that's how I describe the reliability engineer I run across. You might often feel like that you and your team is nothing more than a mouse in a bigger zoo. How do you influence? If you look at your organization, 
How do you uh, get that influence that you need? Well, the reality is sometimes I speak to reliability engineers who have this conundrum and it turns out they don't have this whole concept of why, the value associated with the why, how they do it, what they're creating, and uh, sorry, the act of creation and what they create at the end of that process. They don't have that for that, their little team themselves. And I'll point out, it's hypocritical for you to criticize your big organization if you haven't got this sorted out yourself. So what I advise a lot of engineers to do is look at yourself as a team, look at your organization. What is your why for being there? What are your beneficiaries? Your beneficiaries might be the boss you work for, your project director or project manager. What do they value? The customers or the users might be the employees in your organization which you come in and help solve their reliability problems on a, on a, on a daily basis. You might even be part of a bigger, uh, create a bigger uh, pathway to reliability, a bigger organizational plan. What is the purpose for you guys to be uh, being there? How are you adding value to the organization? So for example, what is the value that, you're, that you are trying to, that your why needs to support? Are you trying to drive down the cost of downtime? Is, your idea, is the purpose of your organization to uh, have more efficient Vermeers or is increase yield to drive down production schedules and costs? increase fleet availability, decrease warranty costs, or has it helped your team make things work? The reason why this is important is because when you are alone with your CEO in the lift, you need to explain to him or her why you are there, what makes your team valuable. So ask yourselves, what is your why? Why do you and your reliability team exist? And how does your team create value? And there's 10 tips that I'll, that I'll, um, I'll throw down today. The tip, first tip is have the right why. It's not to do reliability effort. It's to, uh, it's to need to be based on a story. How are you important or integral to your organization? Are you there? Is, uh, if you're the reliability manager of your department, do you say on a daily basis, team, you are here to make sure we have happy users and customers. What is it that you're there to do? Are we, to are we there to drive down uh, the cost of downtime. When we try to maximize throughput, why are we here? Are we? But it's not just that. That's a measure of value. Why are we? How, why are we? Uh, why do we exist in the first place? Are we there because we're going to influence people? Are we going there because we're going to do data analysis? Why are we here? If you typically say our purpose is to do reliability stuff, then that's not going to be uh, viewed very favorably from the rest of the organization. If you are there to promote a culture where you hunt failures and, uh, and, and promote the idea of eliminating costs associated with reliability in a very tangible way, then you're starting, uh, starting to get a bit closer to why you exist. The second tip is to have individual purpose. People care deeply about purpose. People, like I said, will go to organizations with lower salaries if it's more exciting. That is the individual, uh, that's how individuals relate to the why of your organization. So if you're a reliability dude or dudette, you need to do things like focus one-on-one -on -one meetings and have less committee stuff. Less, less, uh, we need to have less reports and going through numbers and fact-checking this and all that sort of good stuff. So how do we make sure our reliability engineers uh, uh, do what they do in a way that they feel they add value. So if you're working in a medical device organization, how does the efforts of one engineer uh, add value to the world? How, do we, how does their purpose link to what we're doing? 
And many organizations who make medical devices insist that engineers uh, mingle with patients and users who their product is going to help. It's very important. I see organizations who, organizations who do this tend to be the more successful, more professional organizations because they get that the uh, individual purpose needs to be linked to the bigger why. So you can do this at a smaller scale. You can uh, allow your engineers to mingle with the pilots of that brand new fighter jet you're, you're, uh, you're building. That helps them uh, make a tangible link to what it is they're doing on a daily basis. And once you have that motivation, always, always have clear direction. So what does success look for your reliability team one, two, five, or 10 years from now? Is year one to have, for example, a familiar culture? Is year 10 to have failure rate reduced by a factor of 10? And then once you have that, uh, if you don't have what success looks like, it, very, very, it makes it very difficult to uh, formulate the how to get there. And if you don't have success, uh, have a clear idea of success, then everything you do can be recast as success later on. Uh, if, you, if nothing's a failure, then everything's successful. So if you, if, and if you don't give the direction to your team, they're going to go into that hobby factory. They're gonna do the things that, they're gonna do the rival analyses, which they prefer. They're gonna do the analyses, which they like more than the others, which means that you have lost control of this team. There's a lot of effort being expended. People look at your reliability team and say, you guys seem so busy, but what have you done for me lately? So if you can define what success looks like for your team, one, two, five, 10 years from now, that helps galvanize those motivated people to work towards that goal. And yes, perhaps even have them put them, push themselves out of their comfort zone. And which comes back to tip number four, they need to be given autonomy. Reliability engineers who are told you need to uh, do a statistical analysis as long as it aligns with this outcome or supports this conclusion, you know what? That reliability engineer is not going to be there for too long unless they're incompetent and don't have options, in which case they might, uh, they might not have much choice. But the reality is good reliability engineering is autonomous reliability engineering because autonomy allows critical thinking. And critical thinking um, is always linked to value. If you say our mission is to image the Earth's surface every single, uh, every inch of the Earth's surface every single 24 hours, that, uh, that unleashes all sorts of creative solutions to get there. It doesn't just have to be, we are going to launch 7.5 small satellites every month, da 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 da, da. That is, uh, that destroys critical thinking when you tell people how they're going to do their job. Fifth, uh, fifth tip is mastery which obviously means that people need to be trained, but they need to be challenged. So if someone is, uh, if you or somebody else in your team does the same thing day in, day out, even if they do it well, they need to be challenged. Even if initially they get, they push against that. So training allows people to develop new skills and then those challenges allow them to be, uh, to develop those skills and, and, uh, and uh, get the confidence they deserve from uh, utilizing those new skills to realize really good outcomes. So autonomy is very, very important. And this is something that, tip number six, something that a lot of engineers don't like talking about, and that is emotions, the emotional mind. So the emotional mind is different to the rational mind. So the rational mind might have this vision of what, uh, in this case, he 
wants his body to look like by the end of the year. That's the rational mind. This body epitomizes strength, fitness, longevity, all those other good things that are, that are linked to quality of life. That's the rational mind at work when they come up with this idea of what our body needs to look like by the end of the year after we made that New Year's resolution. The emotional mind looks like this. I want ice cream now. So the, the problem with uh, the rational mind versus the emotional mind is that the emotional mind always wins, always. So if working out at the gym seems like a chore, you hate going there, it's, it sucks, then you are not going to get that body that you see on the left-hand side of the screen. The people who get that body are able to link their emotions to going to the gym. They get a high out of going to the gym. They enjoy going to the gym. They enjoy exercising, crazy as that might sound. And that is where you get the results. Now, if people, um, if people associate reliability with a very, from a very rational perspective, they understand it's important, but emotionally, they also wanna start designing the wrong thing really fast then the emotional mind is always going to win. If you can convince people that, hey, if you think about reliability from the start, you're going to drive down your production costs, you're gonna have fewer issues when you, go, when you turn up to each design review, you're going to essentially be that much faster than your compadre over there who's not, who doesn't have the reliability mindset. You're going to look great for your boss because you've solved all the problems uh, before uh, manufacture versus once they're in the field, if, you, if people are able to understand that uh, the, the emotional benefits of reliability, such as in, uh, improved perception of performance, are tied to reliability engineering, that's when the rational mind and the emotional mind coincide. And the emotional mind will always win. And to help create that emotional mind, we need to create, to celebrate success. Now, one thing that sucks the soul out of lots of us without knowing it is working for a project for 10 years where success is only bestowed upon us once that project is finished. So we have to toil away. We need to lose several decades of our, of our life working on this project. And at 10 years from now, we'll be told if it was a good, good uh, we, did, we did good or not. That has been shown to be very, very bad for us psychologically. In fact, we know that people who work in those environments are 22% less likely to have what they call life satisfaction. If you have smaller successes celebrated on a weekly or even monthly basis, people are happier. And all those other things, all that motivation, all that emotional mind nonsense comes more naturally because they get immediate feedback on good work. So we need to celebrate small successes. And reliability engineering is very hard to do in that way, especially with traditional uh, perspectives, because the ultimate test of reliability engineering is, does it fail years from now? So again, if you do a FAMIA and you're able to uh, reduce the number of defects in your first design review, that needs to be celebrated because you have just saved that organization millions of dollars uh, by, of rework and all sorts of other stuff later on because you tried to prevent things from failing before they were allowed to fail in a prototype and then decide to do something about it. So small successes are essential. Sorry, celebrating small successes are essential. Then we need to support and enable. 
And this might seem problematic to especially a lot of what we call old school leadership types. Instead of expecting your underlings to do their job, you on a daily basis should be saying to your reliability team and the people who work for you, what do you need to do to do a better job? And that is very important for a whole raft of reasons. Um, most importantly, it shows that you care. And if you care, then people care about you. But if you don't do that, if you're a leader who expects everyone to do their job, again, what invariably happens is for people to, for example, argue for additional training or argue for that uh, test chamber, they have to do a business case to get your attention. And that automatically sets a, sets a very adversarial uh, relationship from the start. But if you're asking from the day, day one, what do you need to do to do a better job? And if that person says back to you, the boss, I need a whole test chamber, all of a sudden you can say with some authority, okay, not sure exactly how I'm gonna do that, but I'll work on it and get back to you. As opposed to them having to be, uh, them, the owners being expected, owners expecting, sorry, the onus is on them to raise a business case in the first place. It just generally sets a precedent that you don't care. And if you do care, you need to share the load for tons of reasons, good leadership reasons. And, uh, Hopefully that's, that's very easy to understand, at least in the context of this webinar. Won't go to it, into it in greater detail, but it's something we forget a lot. And finally, you need to be the behaviors you want. A lot of the time when I'm speaking with uh, clients, I ask them, if you were to look at all the words you, uh, you throw out of your mouth on a daily basis, hey, project director, let's go to your calendar. Let's see what time, let's, create a breakdown of the, of the time you, you spend talking each day and try and work out what the subjects are that you're talking about. So if all you talk about is the weekly report, supplies, visit by the CEO, functionality, schedule and budget, if they're the things that you're talking about more than anything else, that's where your priorities are. And human beings are great at picking up on that. So if your boss is always talking about budget and schedule, you know that the only thing that you can do to impress that person is to be on budget and on schedule. If reliability is this tiny little sliver over here, then that's how important that person uh, considers reliability to be. So when you're speaking to your reliability team and those around you, be mindful of what it is you're saying. If you go, if you're, if you dropped into a project team and the only thing you talk about is standards this and test procedure that, then that's the most important thing uh, being conveyed to the people you're supposed to help. But if you're there saying, hey, let's get on top of the vital few ways your thing's going to fail. Let's try and get those weak points so we can uh, meet the design review uh, and, and pass that test of flying colors. As a reliability engineer, that is hugely important. It's all about uh, understanding that you're talking to human beings who respond to words better than anything else. So what does your calendar and meetings minutes say that you value? If you got in, in any doubt, go back to uh, what it, go back to you, to your Outlook calendar and work out what it is that you uh, you spend most time on. So, in short, organisations who are successful have this whole why, value, how, create, what thing sorted. They have a purpose. That purpose is valuable. If it's not valuable, then it's a hobby. So they have the purpose. The purpose is, is the most important thing, the vision. 
the reason why people get out of bed each day. That's the most important thing. And ideally, it's something that other people value. And that's what success needs to, needs to, start, needs to start with. And once you have a very clear idea of what the purpose is, you can start putting together the how. How do we achieve success? And once you have the how sorted, then you can uh, then you entrust the how into talented people to go and create that product system or service. And the end of that creation period is the what. The what is simply a symptom of the why. And if you don't have the why, if the value, if the why is fuzzy, if you prioritize, if you prioritize value, or if you uh, if you outsource creation to the extent the only thing you process you, you, you focus on is the how, the, the bureaucracy, so on and so forth. If any of those things uh, are out of out of order, then you have that poor culture that uh, Doug was talking about. So when I'm so, answering Doug's question, finally, how does what I'm saying tug, uh, tie back into culture? Culture starts at the top. There are many reasons why you can have poor culture, which can be personal reasons. It can be leadership issues. It can be very human factors which drive poor culture. But what I, the main point of what I'm trying to say today is it starts with the why. If you don't have a robust why, if you can't explain succinctly and clearly to your cohorts, to your bosses, why your reliability team is valuable, then you will inevitably set the stage or set the scene or poor workship, a workplace culture. It might even be just this adversarial relationship between the reliability team and everybody else who can't understand how you add value and therefore you're an embuggerance. At the higher level, if you can't explain why you were there as an organization, you can't explain, hey, we are here to make military vehicles, but you can't explain what makes your military vehicle special, what makes your military vehicles five years from now better than everybody else's. If you can't explain that, then you don't have this underlying purpose which drives performance. And culture is very hard uh, to maintain in organizations that don't start with the why. And for us reliability engineers, it starts with what we do. So I can see I've gone a little bit over time. Um, thank you, Doug, uh, for that response to my response. I'll, uh, I understand if people need to spare off, but I'm going to stay here for as long as it takes to answer each and every question. Thank you, Evan. Any more, any questions? Any questions, any comments, any anecdotes, any, uh, any commiserations to be shared amongst across the team? Okay, Neil, you got a question I see. No worries, Bill, catch you later. Okay, Laura asked a really good question. Any advice on how to motivate and management to change? Really good question. So what I, and this is a topic of a much bigger conversation I often have with people, is when you're trying to change the, the perception of your boss. You can argue what's important to you to, till you're blue in the face. You can also argue what's important to the organization till you're blue in the face. But if your, your boss has his or her own personal reasons for, um, for being who or he, who 
or what he or she is. And sometimes that's unrecoverable. Sometimes they're just a, they're a gluttonous waste of oxygen, um, just walking around your office space who are just ruining the lives of everyone they touch. Those people do exist. But let's just say that you are in a, in a position where it's not like that. You might not be best buddies with your boss or your manager, but suffice to say, you're on different wavelengths. Perhaps you're the reliability engineer and they're the guy or girl who's, who's reluctantly being put in charge of you. I don't know. The idea is that whenever you're, whenever you're trying to influence their decision-making, you need to sit down personally and perhaps with your team and work out what motivates them personally. And if you go through that brainstorming process, as a rule, you could write down all these very selfish personal motivations of your boss. You could also brainstorm all the organizational, um, organizational motivations as well, profitability, all those sorts of things. And if you're lucky, you might be able to draw a circle around where those things overlap. So for example, we've had some success in the past. I use for me is a lot in these examples because a lot of people associate with reliability engineering with fixing failures 10 years from now. But for me is when done well, prevent problems from occurring. I use the analogy of, of having five problems. Problem number one is a failure your customer experiences. Problem number two is a failure you uncover just before launch, which is not as bad as an uh, issue your customer experiences, but still very expensive. You might have to choose between reworking or launching a substandard product. That's product problem number two. Problem number three is a problem you uncover towards the end of your design cycle. Still expensive, still time consuming, but it's not as bad as problems two or one. Problem number four is actually a problem we like because that's where you use, for example, halt test chambers to push early prototypes beyond their design limits to try and work out their weak points. Um, so we don't mind problem number four very much. And problem number five is a problem we prevent by doing a FAMIA, for example. So these issues never occur because we thought about them in, in advance and prevented problems four through to one occurring later on. And I, sh I show them an example where in liquid rocket fuel industry, they did a study to compare that sort of approach to life to one where you essentially did build test fixing. And where you have reliability built in from the start, they were able to uh, produce these rockets twice as fast with 73% uh, less money being spent. So if you can educate for example, the manager who is very um, who, who is very skeptical about reliability and say, hey, if we do these things, we can start realizing benefits today, which go onto your quarterly report and will, will reflect very well on you. If we do have a, if we're able to, to do for me a training, if we can get on board, all those problems we had last year, all that scrap and rework we had to go through, all those uh, issues that our first design review team uncovered without what we thought was an amazing design we can perhaps eliminate all those problems. So this year, we don't have all those problems of last year and the preceding years by making reliability a, probably, a priority because reliability is not all about failure. And you can also, in other organizations, have been able to uh, demonstrate how reliability tools actually allows you to come up with really cool features which customers prefer. So not just trying to prevent failure from a physical sense, uh, prevent failure to uh, meet your customers' expectations. So that comes back to the first thing I was saying, work out what the personal selfish motivations of your boss, bosses are or, or audience are, and do the same with your organizational goals, perhaps even your own goals, and draw a circle around 
the bits that overlap, the bits that uh, make sense. And then if you need help, then reach out to platforms like Ascendo Reliability for advice. Uh, but then you need to create the narrative which, which, uh, that, which then convinces your audience that reliability is important to you because value is provided to you in this very particular way. Does that uh, come anywhere close to answering your question? Uh, sorry, just scroll up a bit. Laura, does that answer your question? Okay, again, if you wanna chat offline, please feel free to email me after this. You've got my contact details on the website. Uh, Neil asked a question. If there has been a historic failing of understanding the importance of engineering and reliability in the organization, how does an engineering manager bring this up with senior management without offending them? Very good question. And there's a lot of different approaches and a lot of it is very uh, human social skills as well. So what you can do is focus on what you can achieve versus the atrocities you're going to prevent. If you, if you look at it uh, as, if you look at uh, an organization which has no reliability culture, they don't know what they don't know. You can look at this particular activity and say, hey, all those issues we had last year, can we please invest in a halt chamber because it allows us to do this, 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 and this, or all those problems we found towards the end of our production life cycle last year, if we had this chamber, we'd be able to identify them earlier. Rough, um, rough guess at how much money we would save is this, that, and the other. Uh, if you start, you might want to reference the past, but if you can phrase it in a way where you're trying to improve on today's baseline without passing judgment on the baseline, and that's the way to go, in my opinion. And of course, you don't want to offend people. So it all comes down to how you couch your advice or couch your phrase or couch your request. Uh, it can be, I can't, and I can't obviously uh, cherry pick the words that you need to use. It's all about making sure you come across as acknowledging the baseline is where it is and we want to get better. We want to improve things versus uh, try, uh, versus a narrative where you're saying, hey, we are terrible. We need to become less terrible. Does that make sense, Neil? I'll let Neil take some time to respond to that one. But I'll also point, I'll also point out if you can, uh, when you're couching your advice, if you can put it in terms of what makes, what motivates again, those senior managers, that's really, really useful. So if those senior managers are all about, for example, if they're focusing on profit, which is a function of, so say, warranty returns, if you have an idea which can drive down warranty returns, so that ties in with their concept of value, along with, say, along with not offending, offending them by um, referencing the status as of today as a, as a baseline, couching your advice in terms of something new and amazing, Nine times out of 10, I'd expect you to get, to get a fairly receptive ear. And, but of course, there are bad people everywhere in all walks of life. You might just have a very um, cold and passive senior management team or senior leadership team. Sometimes you can't do too much about that. But if you can really focus on what, what they value personally, couch your advice as improving the, from the status quo and, uh, and delivering that in a non-confrontational way, hopefully you'll get to uh, uh, where you need to be. Okay, I can see that was answered. Oh, no worries, Neil, you uh, asked that in the uh, 
question Q&A box as well. All right, Jamie asks, what framework or tools can we provide our reliability champions, assuming they have the essential attributes and also may not have a direct reliability title? Hmm, so uh, there's lots of different answers here. I'm guessing, Jamie, you're referring to a bunch of people who work in your organization who are doing good reliability things, but they're not a reliability guy or girl, but it's also within their job title. Um, and they, you also mentioned they may have the essential attributes and skills to do what it is you want them to do. So one thing you might consider is having some sort of, ad, some sort of ad hoc committee or some sort of steering group where you have these people who are across these different projects and every week or two weeks, they come together and they start forming a collective team or forging a group identity outside of their parent projects or parent organizations. And when you do that, all of a sudden, you, get, you have the ability to unleash those wonderful group dynamics we want to see in an organization where we have, we have to work collectively together. So obviously getting them together and, and forging this sort of collective uh, sense of purpose is, is, uh, is very important, but then you need to leverage that platform to take to the next level. So if you can say uh, to this now newly formed collective who whose day jobs are other things, this is why we meet every Tuesday or every, every month or whatever it is. You need to give that team their own why. If you gather people together just to do a, you know, let's do a check-in and see how the boxes are being ticked. Very quickly, that turns into just one of those, um, that one of those meetings that they just have to turn up to because they've been told to be there. We, we know those sorts of meetings, but if you can say, hey, we are collectively responsible for driving down the defect rate for our organization. And you work over in that department, you work on that machine, you work over there. But our collective goal is to drive down the defect rate for the organization. Oh, and by the way, we, the COO has, uh, is very, very keenly interested in this little team, this little group. And he's going to come down here uh, every now and then as well to, because, to, try and, uh, to try and reinforce how important this is to the organization. Um, and if that then, if any, if any, uh, if any progress is then quickly rewarded or quickly acknowledged in that team or that group, then you start getting this little center of mass, a center of expertise in those organizations where you don't have formal reliability engineering titles, but you do have this collective sense of, sense of purpose for your reliability engineers. Um, does that answer your question, Jamie? Of course, there's a few, lots of variations to that idea. But is that anywhere close to your uh, close to your team uh, close to your question? I can see that you also ask that attributes equals good leadership, drive, and motivation, but are not uh, sorry. The attributes these guys have now, I get they have good leadership, they have the drive and the motivation, but they're not reliability engineers. But they have front lines uh, access to the data can make the changes we need. It is an operations question. Okay, so I think I answered part of that. It sounds to me like, uh, Jamie, that you would really want to focus on training these people as well. Good training, not just ticking the box training. But if you are serious about this, if you can collect, form that collective uh, sense of identity between these disparate people who are going to, uh, in a very ad hoc way, make reliability happen, then you might need to bite the bullet and train them once you've worked out what it is you're trying to achieve and how you're going to do it. So. 
that comes back to you to work out what these guys, why these guys exist. What are we trying to achieve? Is it to drive, is it to create a reliability culture whose value is going to be realized through reduced defect rates, for example. And once you have that worked out, then you work out how we're going to do it. So these guys turn up, work, and they can, they can then uh, step into the how, the framework, the process you come up with to support the why they are here there in the first place. And part of that, when if you do that properly, you might identify the need for them to be trained. And then you let people be people and with autonomy and all those, all, all those other sorts of freedoms to go and solve your problems for you. Does that do, do an even better job? Uh, Jamie, if you're still there, okay. Thank you, Jamie. One caution I would say to you, Jamie, and everybody else is just not grab people, say you're a liability engineers, have monthly meetings with donuts, and then tell them to go back. That's that's bound for failure. You, be, you become sort of a, a, a milestone of achievement in, in the, the weekly calendar versus trying to uh, create something new and amazing. Any more questions? Still got a healthy bunch of attendees hanging on. Any more for any more. You guys are giving me a couple of good ideas for the articles we write in the sender reliability as well. So uh, thanks for that. Looking at you, Jamie. Thank you, Hajat. And you, you say stay safe as well. Much appreciated. Okay, Fred, I think we're just about exhausted all our, all our listeners for today. If, if there's no further questions, again, oh, got one more, it would appear. If there are no reliabilities, reliability engineers in an organization which manufactures components for large machines, where should one start to build the team? Okay, so this might sound repetitive, but if you can go back to the start and say, why do we want to have reliability engineers? Now, it might sound flippant, but you really do need to define it very, very well. Is it to, is it to uh, create a reliability culture where, for example, manufacturing quality supports organizational value? If that's the case, that's, if that's why you're there, what does value look like for your reliability team? Is it all about driving down defect rates and, and prioritizing defects, the early identification of defects? What, it, it, what, does, what do you value? And don't just think about it, try and write it down, brainstorm with your team, make sure everyone's on board with that. And often when you do that, you might say, it, it might uh, quickly point to a particular metric, defect rates, for example, yield, um, 
or maybe throughput, or maybe a combination of all, the, all, the, all of the above, you then might do a bit of analysis to work at how you get there. How do we, what are our historical problems? What, are, what is holding us back between, uh, 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 from getting to where we want to go? Fred and I and a bunch of others, when we talk about uh, coming up with a reliability plan, talk call this essentially a gap analysis as part of a bigger uh, reliability plan. But for this purpose of this conversation, work out what is holding you back? What is the difference between where we are now to where we need to be? Perhaps it could be something as simple as there's no visibility of the defect rates we only find out later on. So we need to become more aware of the defects we, we are creating on a daily basis. And once you do that, a lot of the time, if you spend a lot of time on those first three steps, the, the why, the value, the how, sometimes the, uh, the, uh, the pathway eliminates itself because you realize we need to introduce this capability. We need people to be taught this, that, and the other. We need to have this test chamber over here. And what am I doing right now? I'm coming up with the reliability team that you need. And when we go through that thought process, you might be able to work out uh, if, for example, some people can do uh, their, that reliability function in addition to their current roles, or if you need a full-time person or somebody else to come on board, or you need a special skill set. If you start with the why, link it to value, tie it to the metrics that matter, and you start uh, doing even just a rudimentary analysis about how you're going to resolve those problems by first starting to identify those problems, the team you need to come up with can often just easily fall out of that thought process. Uh, does that answer your question? Okay, thank you, Neil. Assume that was you, uh, anonymous attendee in the Q&A box. Back to Jamie. Our value often comes from effort. One area which is often light is procedures and the quality of procedures. Other than that, uh, procedural failures, lagging data, any comment on value and procedures, especially in mature organizations who believe they know better? Um, that's a very big question, a very broad question. Uh, I've seen procedures be too, um, too prescriptive. I've seen procedures be too light on. I think one of the, so I could talk for hours about this, I won't, but I think one of the biggest shortcomings I see with procedures in general is we have these processes and procedures and these guidebooks and these handbooks, but we've lost where that procedure came from. What is that procedure trying to achieve? And I see this actually in the satellite industry. Uh, there's a lot of guidebooks out there which say you need to do this, 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 and this. And for small satellites, it's a problem because those guidebooks were written for big satellites. And so you ask yourself, why do I need to do that particular test that doesn't seem relevant for small satellites? And it's not relevant but you're not allowed to skip that test because the guidebook says so. So one of the best things you can do for each and every process or procedure is link it back to why you were doing it. So if you were doing this test, have a very clear definitional description up front why you were doing that test. We run this test to inform this decision to do A or B, which allows you as a bright young engineer to look at that process, look at that procedure and say, oh, that decision is not relevant for my product. I don't need to do that test, for example. So when we have processes and procedures which um, aren't linked, to, which don't uh, aren't linked back to why they exist in the first place, 
very quickly, we can have this big bloated volume of stuff that we are told we need to do. We don't know why, but no one's got the guts to say we don't have to do it anymore. If you link it back to what each process and procedure is trying to achieve, it allows people to come up with better processes and procedures as technologies change, but also perhaps even more importantly, allows people to skip that process or step in a very informed and value driving way. Perhaps the most, that's the most uh, telling feature I see in, pro, in uh, sorry, that's the most dominant characteristic I see in organizations which have poor quality processes and procedures. Is that uh, anywhere near the, near the mark, Jamie? Still got 14 long haulers hanging around. Just waiting to, I'm guessing Jamie's typing a response to critique my response. Again, feel free to use this time to ask your own questions. Okay, so Jamie just said, yes, it has me thinking about comparing well-designed systems versus poor design and having to manage poor design in the field. Yeah, it's an ongoing struggle dealing with design issues in the field. And again, reliability engineering can help you make just not only more reliable designs, but better designs. And one of the examples I use actually is the um, Motorola um, um, push to talk two-way radio. Sorry, Motorola, Motorola two-way radio. You can see this in Carl Carlson's uh, effective for me books um, and I use it in my courses course as well where Motorola who is the industry leader in two-way radio technology looked at failure from the perspective of failing to impress the customer and they used uh, traditional reliability activities to not only make sure we had a robust design made sure that our push to talk button had a texture on it that allowed military operators to quickly um, in the dark, I'd uh, locate that push talk button at night without uh, having to take their gloves off, for, for example. Uh, very, very simple design change, which uh, meant that it became a very, very appealing product for a very big uh, market segment just because they focused on making sure that push talk button, which is on a small device, was easily locatable with the thumb of a soldier who was obviously potentially being shot at wearing uh, thick gloves and is, at, and is doing this at night, uh, they wanna be able to quickly locate that button. And that's a big selling point for these two-way radios. And they used reliability engineering to create not only a reliable design, but a desirable design as well. So are there any more questions moving forward? Again, also uh, feel free to reach out and, uh, and uh, continue this conversation with me personally after this. Uh, I know Fred um, answers questions on, on this topic all the time as well. Uh, you've got my contact details at ascenderreliability.com. So I know 
Uh, if you got if you turn up this webinar, you know how to get there. So if you do want to reach out, feel free to continue this conversation later on. But given that we are uh, uh, 30 minutes beyond the allotted time, which is fantastic and okay by me, but I know you guys have stuff to do. I might wrap things up there. And once again, thank you guys for turning up today. Thank you for uh, persevering through to, through to the end and asking some really good questions. And I would urge you as reliability engineers or people who are involved with reliability engineering, try and always focus on why we are doing things. And if you focus on why we're doing it, try and come up with a phrase which describes it pretty easily and quickly. Work out what the value associated with, associated with that why is. And then after you've thought about that for a while, start coming up with a how you're going to get there. The solution often just falls out. We sometimes feel stuck and uh, not empowered to make sweeping changes or things that we need, things that we think we need to do. Uh, sorry, do things we think we need to do to make uh, the life around the world around us better. We sometimes feel, uh, I suppose, overwhelmed or lost or don't know where to start. Start with why you and your team are there. Why is that reliability team meeting on a fortnightly basis? Why are they here? Now, if you can't articulate to them why they are here, they sure as hell don't know. So if you start with why they are here, what makes that purpose valuable, Valuable allows that uh, act of coming up with the, the how, how we're going to get there, the process and procedures to get from where we are today to where we need to be, it makes it that much more simple. And sometimes uh, it's a lot simpler than you think if you just take the time to think about why we're doing things. So... Uh, thank you all for turning up today and I look forward to seeing you at future webinars and obviously uh, online conversations on AscendoReliability.com.